This is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome to the Sidcast. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College on leadership and strategy and love doing this podcast where I get to talk to all these kind of cool, interesting people to find out what makes them tick, uh, what they, why they do what they do, and what we all can learn from that. And today our guest is Eric Osterberg, and Eric is uh, a professor of earth sciences, uh, up here at Dartmouth College, and someone who has been to Greenland and Antarctica and Alaska and uh, takes ice samples and studies uh, what has happened to those, uh, to those samples over time uh, as a result of air pollution and other, um, other sources of, uh, of, um, um, of pollution. And, um, and I think what he has to say about climate change, if you don't already know, is going to be pretty, pretty scary. Uh, but you know, it's not not everybody gets it. Not everybody understands it. Maybe not everybody wants to understand it. I was at I was speaking um, at a um, at a conference of senior executives uh, not that long ago, and the topic of uh, climate change came up. This was you know during um, during the lunch break, and uh, uh, I was talking to this guy, a very senior executive, who said really without hesitation that the research on climate change is really mixed. And that scientists had uh, different points of view on this. And why, this is what he said, why make the type of large-scale changes that some people are asking for when you don't really know what's going on? And he was, you know, he wasn't just making it up in his in his head. He truly believed it. And, um, you know, the evidence, as uh, as Eric is going to share with us and as so many people will know from uh, from reading about it themselves, is virtually overwhelming uh, about uh, the direction which... The climate has gone, the climate change has gone, and it's not gone in a very good direction. But yet there are many, many people who, who, who just don't want to buy into it. And, um, and one of the things we, we, we want to think about and we'll talk about, I'll ask Eric about, is you know, how do you convince people? How do you, how do you get the, um, the political uh, forces, the, um, the momentum that you need to be able to make the types of changes that are, that are needed? This, of course, is a more... Uh, generalizable problem. How do you get people to do what maybe they don't always want to do themselves? How do you get people to do what needs to get done when different people have different uh, interests? And a lot of it will boil down to good old-fashioned self-interest. Can you align how people think about these things? Can you help people, um, let's say business people, uh, uh, who might, and, and many of them don't, but who might uh, doubt the research on climate change. Could you help move them along by creating incentives that uh, that make it in their interest to say, you know what, we can help uh, solve that problem. One of the biggest reasons why people don't change, um, you know, aligning self-interest is going to is going to help. But one of the biggest reasons, and I've looked at this in many many different uh, endeavors and different types of of change and different types of organizations, that you know they they're not actually willing to change. It might sound a little silly, but um, it is really fundamental. Um, oftentimes when people don't change, don't adapt, don't want to do something different, it's because they, uh, um, they, they can't or they think they can't. But my research into senior executive decision-making has shown rather overwhelmingly that the first step in this process is that you truly have to be willing to change. And 
and a lot of people are simply simply not. So let's not overlook that first uh, that first spot. You know, once you're willing to change, then the pathway becomes clear. You come up with a better idea, and I think when it comes to climate change, there are a lot of better ideas out there, and then you have to execute on, which is complicated and takes, you know, in this case, tax policy, political momentum, and lots of other things that, I, that I've touched on. But I think it's important to keep in mind that it all starts with the willingness that people have either to change or not to change. And if they're not willing, not a lot's going to happen. And that's just the tip of the uh, tip of the iceberg, uh, literally. Um, Eric is fascinating, a uh, fascinating person who's uh, done all this kind of amazing, amazing research. And uh, and what better, or maybe more timely, more important topic to uh, to be talking about than uh, than the topic of climate change? Be prepared to get a little nervous. We'll be uh, right back with um, with Eric Osterberg. Welcome back to the Sidcast. I'm here today with Eric Osterberg. Hey, Eric. Hey. Um, I'm glad to uh, to have you here because you do work on on climate change, and boy, is that a topic uh, everybody wants yeah. to know about. Uh, so um, um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your career and how you got to where you got to. But I want to start right away thinking about you know I was picturing this uh, some of these expeditions you go on. Right. Sure. You've been to Antarctica. You've been in northern Canada, Greenland. Yep. So let's just take one of them. Say the Greenland. Um, uh, actually, you may have been more than once to Greenland. Yeah, several times to oh, Greenland. Yeah. Okay, so pick the pick anyone that that, sure. that is particularly memorable. Maybe the first one. I'm just wondering, like, what what is that? What is that like? Like, how do you how do you even do such a thing? How, sure. Where's the airport in Greenland? <laughs> yeah, great questions. So, uh, you know, how we came up, I, my, my research previously was in Alaska, so I'd never been to Greenland, and uh, I was really excited to try and study Greenland because we know there's a lot uh, happening there with climate change. The glaciers are melting quickly. So it's a hot spot for our research. So we, we put in a proposal, and we were fortunate enough to get funded by the National Science Foundation. And the way that we we were going to the northwest part of Greenland, a place near Thule, Greenland, and there's actually an Air Force base up there okay. that goes back to the Cold War. Wow. Okay, So they actually opened this base up in like the 1950s in order to be an early warning missile detection system to see if Russia was that sending ICBMs. That does sound a little uh, anachronistic now. I don't think we it can was, detect anything this fast This place enough. is crazy. <laughs> this place is crazy. They had uh, twenty to 25,000 troops stationed there back during the Cold War. Wow. And now there's like this small skeleton crew of, of U.S. military. There's a lot of Greenland contractors who are mostly Danish. And the base is like a fraction of the size it used to be. But you have these old haunted like buildings, barracks. That they're, they're empty. They're empty. And then actually the first year we were there, they were tearing them down. So uh-huh. when we got there, this base was, was huge and all these empty barracks that were really kind of creepy. Right. And then, um, and then when we came out uh, of the field, off the glacier, mm-hmm. they were gone. <laughs> so like oh, they while were pretty we were, fast at it. They were quick. You yeah, while that. we were there, <laughs> the, a scrap, a, a boat came in and took all of it for, for scrap. And so, uh, I mean, you know what that makes me think of? You ever see the movie The Shining? Yes. Jack Nicholson, yes. scary, scary yeah, movie, yeah. right? And it's kind of like he's haunting this uh, this old hotel that yeah. no one's ever around. Um, well, the creepiest things is they have these these Nike missile sites. So these are these are missile bunkers that have you know barbed wire around them, like guard towers, and then you go underground. And there are these old launch bays that used to have Nike missiles that were intended to shoot down, um, you know, enemy planes and. It was, you're there, and now they're half filled with uh, ice, so water kind of percolates down there Uh and then fills them up, so you're, like, crawling around, like, underneath the low ceiling on the ice, and it's like they just picked up and left one day. I mean, everything's just frozen. They left left these missiles in there? Yeah, well, no, the missiles are gone. (laughs) (laughs) The missiles are gone, but the... um, 
these 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 missile launch bays are still right. there, and you can just go. Uh, you know, as somebody once you're on the base, you can just go there. So, um, a hundred thousand years from now, assuming there is still life on Earth, yeah. there will be uh, people finding fossil records yeah. and saying, "So this is how these prehistoric people uh, lived." Yeah, they seem to like war. They seem to like war. It is creepy, and uh, and so we actually fly on a military transport plane, yeah. an Air Force plane, up to Thule Base. And then once we're there, in order to get onto the glacier, we use um, uh, Air Greenland. It's a you know a commercial airline. They've got a helicopter service. There's a commercial airline. It's a commercial in airline in Greenland. It's probably started by the Danes. I'm not exactly sure. Uh-huh. But um, but we we rent or NSF rents a helicopter from them, and, mm-hmm. and the helicopter flies us up onto the glacier. Or they have planes that that have skis on them that can land on the glacier. And so that's how we do it. We get up on the glacier. We do our our research for yeah. however long, a month or you so. Would, you'd stay in these barracks when they existed or yeah, so, tents or yeah, so And there were still, you know, some are still there. They just downsized the, the yeah, base significantly. Yeah. But when we're on the base, yeah, we're staying in the basically the science barrack with other scientists. And there's, you know, somewhere around 10 total scientists on the base at any time. And uh, and then we spend most of our time out on the glaciers doing our research. And you do you come back to the barracks or you're kind no? Of when on we're, the when we're on the glacier, we're we're out there. You're far we're, away. We're, we're sleeping in tents. We're totally. How do you stay warm? Uh, layering, <laughs> lots of clothing, and and we're there in the summer, so we're there usually between June and August. Temp- but what's it's, the temperature then? You know, daytime temps can be really pleasant. It can be 50, 60 degrees, oh. but then at night it can be cold. The the bigger well, that's that's if we're near the glaciers. Uh, this this trip I was thinking about in particular, when we're actually on the ice sheet itself, um, then daytime temperatures are, you know, maybe peaking right around freezing, mm-hmm. and then nighttime temperatures are sort of negative twenty or something. So negative it's really 20. sleeping at night mm-hmm. in the negative twenty in just a sort of a you know it's like a mountaineering kind of tent. They're they're sort of heavy duty tents, but they don't keep the cold air yeah. out. So what color are the glaciers? So, uh, you know, it really depends where you go. Like, if you go near the edge, they can be this real deep uh, blue. They can have bands of dirt in them, so they can be really dirty in places. Yeah. And then if you go higher up, you know, it's, it's white. It's basically, it has fresh snow on it. And so it, you wouldn't know that you're standing on a mile of ice. It just looks like is you're... Is it a mile? It's a mile of ice? Is that what So in the is? middle of the Greenland ice sheet, it's, um, it's two miles. And then as you go towards the edges, of course, it thins mm-hmm. and then... Sometimes we go right up to the middle where it's two miles deep, and sometimes we're right on the edges. Mm. And, and sometimes we're actually right, like right at the edge where we're trying to, as the ice is melting back, we do things like find plants that were killed when the glacier advanced the last time it got cold. And so it kills them and freezes them. And then when the glacier melts back, we can find those plants and radiocarbon date them and figure out how old they, you know, how long ago they died, and that huh. tells us when the glacier advances. So how, how old are they? Well, so what we find is that um, around, around the edges of Greenland today, most of Greenland advanced in, in a period called the Little Ice Age. So this is sort of begins around um, probably around 1500 A.D., so sort of, you know, Renaissance kind of time, and then peaks around 1850, well, maybe a little earlier, 1830 or so. And then since 1850, we've been naturally warming until about 1900 and then since around 1900 or so human warming has has started to take more and more so we'll obviously talk talk about that yeah Uh, but now you made me think about so this little ice age was actually what did you say 1500 yeah around 1500 1600 1700 for a couple for two or three centuries maybe a couple centuries and so did this kind of translate throughout europe yeah absolutely so you can see you know there's old renaissance art that has pictures of 
you know, some of these famous rivers like the Thames or the Seine that are just totally frozen over. Yeah. And that just doesn't really happen anymore. And, uh, and that was a natural period of cooling that was probably associated with the sun being just a little bit weaker and volcanic Why, okay. eruptions being a little more frequent. Why would that happen? So the sun, the sun changes its, its strength through time and uh, through the internal processes of the sun itself. Uh, we, you know, you've probably heard of like the 11-year solar cycle where mm-hmm. the sunspots, you know, right mm-hmm. now we're in a sunspot minimum. There's basically no sunspots. And then uh, in about five and a half years, we're going to have lots of sunspots. And then we go through this 11-year cycle. And what we also see is much longer cycles that might last uh, centuries. So mm-hmm. you could have you know, several decades of uh, really low solar activity and then several decades of higher sun activity. Mm-hmm. And the Little Ice Age was one of those times when the sun was a little weaker for several decades to a couple centuries. I mean, that's kind of a mind-boggling idea. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we think of the sun as this like, constant, right? Yeah. In fact, in, in atmospheric physics, we have something called the solar constant, right? It's how much energy comes from the sun, <laughs> but it's not a constant. But it actually varies. It actually varies. And so does that mean that, you know, we can have another little ice age or mini ice age uh, or that we will at some point? We, without human activities. Yeah, yes. leaving that to the side. Without human activities, certainly we would have had another, uh, we would likely have had another little ice age the next time the sun got a little weaker. And, you know, five to 10,000 years in the future, we would have had another big ice age, which is not due to changes in how strong the sun is but changes in Earth's orbit around the sun. And that's a very regular thing. So, you know, five to 10,000 years from now, we would have naturally gotten significantly colder and gone into the next ice age. How long would that? So those ice age cycles last about 100,000 years. So we would have gone into another ice age that would have sort of grown over about 50,000 years and probably peaked in about 80,000 years. And then what we see in the geological record is that every time we come out of an ice age, it happens very dramatically. So it takes a long time to slowly grow these ice sheets mm-hmm. over all of Canada. And here in Hanover, New Hampshire, we had a mile of ice on top of us. The mm-hmm. ice sheets went all the way down to, to Long Island. You know, like Cape Cod is an, or, an old huh. deposit from the ice sheet the last time it was there. And then it very quickly melts back in only about 10,000 years. So 80,000 years to very grow. Very quickly, only 10,000 10, years. years. In geology, that's really quick. We got, uh, we got quite a scale we're talking yeah. about here. This is not yeah. like checking your weather when you wake up in the morning. No, this is a totally different... I'm still kind of confused about the whole thing. That, yeah. So in 5,000 years, if leaving man-made activities to the side, yeah. it would be highly likely... It would be virtually certain. Virtually certain. Yes, because these the, what causes that... Are, are very regular changes in Earth's orbit around the sun that are predictable. I think a lot of people think that there was, we could talk about the ice age, right? Like yes. it was, there was yeah. one of right. them. Right. What we see in, geology, in, the, in the record is that we've had dozens of ice ages and that they are very regularly spaced going back in time, every 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. So we've had 10 over the last million years. And then something really weird happened about a million years ago when instead of 100,000 years, we had ice ages every 40,000 years. And so every 40,000 years before that, we had, we had ice ages. So is it the case that um, human activity can change something that goes back a million years? Is oh, absolutely. that powerful? Yeah, we, have, we, we will not have another ice age because of human activity. As long as humans are on this planet, we will not have another ice age. Now, I can say there, that quite confidently. There, there, there is an argument to be made that that's not necessarily a bad thing because no. the whole world's going to 
everyone's going to die. <laughs> no, not everybody would die, but but absolutely that it's a good thing we've for humanity that we've that we've avoided the next ice age. The problem is that we have way overshot what we would need to do to prevent the next ice <laughs> we age. We did too good right? a job. Uh, yeah, I don't like to say too good a uh, yeah, job, I know. but we I'm way overshot where we needed to go. Yeah, wow. Um, so basically all we needed to do was keep, if we had kept CO2 at a level of uh, 300, and the units on that don't really matter, but 300, mm-hmm. we would have been able to stay at sort of a nice, comfortable, you know, 1940s, 1930s kind of climate mm-hmm. indefinitely. If, if we had just kept Where are we CO2. Now? So now we're at around 406. And if we continue on our current path by the end of this century, uh, we should be over 1,000, which, to be clear, is, uh, is, has not happened for tens of millions of years, probably somewhere around 50 million years since the last time the Earth had naturally that much CO2. And you talked about, like, you know, I said rapidly, the mm-hmm. ice sheet's melting in 10,000 years. Yeah. Because in geology, what we learn is that the Earth generally changes pretty slowly, right? Even things that look really dramatic in the geological record, like an extinction event, like the dinosaur extinction event, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Those things take a lot of time, thousands of years. And so what's actually most remarkable about what is happening to our planet now from human activities is how fast it's happening. It's not thousands of years, is it? It's decades. Mm -hmm. It's, It's so to put into context... The amount of warming that we are projected to have by the end of this century is uh, around 5 degrees Celsius, 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. And you can double that for Fahrenheit. So for mm-hmm. our, our U.S. listening audience, that's somewhere around 9 to 10 degrees yep. Fahrenheit. That is the same amount that the Earth cooled in order to have the last ice age. Okay? So people say, I'll say, you know, 5 to 6 degrees Celsius, they go, so what? <laughs> Right? Yesterday was 5 degrees Celsius warmer than today or mm-hmm. colder. Like, who cares about 5 to 6 degrees Celsius, right? The difference between, uh, you know, no change in 5 degrees Celsius is the difference between Hanover today and Hanover with a mile of ice on top of it if you go colder. And so you can imagine what that difference means if you go to the warmer side. Those are enormous changes to, to the Earth's uh, climate and, and ecosystems. Do other planets have the same... Um are affected the same way uh, from the sun in the way you described uh, Earth? So certainly uh, other planets would be affected by changes in the strength of the sun, and presumably other planets have little wobbles in their orbit like we do. But um, I, the, the place where people would have studied that would be Mars because Mars also has ice, right. and, uh, and that would be a place where you might expect climate changes similar to Earth to so affect So warming, it. I'm just thinking of if there's yeah. more warming in Mars for not because there's any humans there yet, mm. uh, but because of the, you know, the, the kind of the way the sun works and the, yeah. and, and, and the earth and, and where actually any planet in the orbit, maybe that would increase the odds of life as we kind of think about it here. Yeah, I, you know, I think when we look at the, the record that we have of Mars, it looks like it was really wet, you know, billions of years ago in the early part of the solar system, yeah. like four billion years ago. And, uh, and that was a time when the sun was a very different strength. It was actually weaker, but Mars would have had actually more atmosphere. It would have been a, been a much warmer and more habitable place. And there's a, in my mind anyway, this is personal opinion, mm-hmm. I think there's a very good chance that there was very early forms of super simple life, like bacteria, archaea kind of level life mm-hmm. on Mars way back then when it was a relatively mild and wet planet. I don't know whether this is something you study uh, specifically, but there's always the search for Earth-like yeah. planets all over the solar system. 
And um, do you think there are such places? Absolutely. Not in our solar system, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly in the, the wider universe, mm -hmm. the, there must be other Earth-like planets. And I am of the mind that what's, what's really neat about the geological record of when life started on this planet mm -hmm. is what we see is uh, it was really, Earth was totally in, uh, unhabitable early on in its history. It was basically a molten ball of magma, okay? <laughs> no life can live there. Mm. And then uh, about 3.7 billion years ago, we started to have oceans. And we had an atmosphere. Things uh, started. Where, where did that come from? So it, it came from actually little water molecules that were incorporated in the planet in the interior, and those water molecules making their way out through volcanoes and to actually create the atmosphere. So our atmosphere came from volcanoes and from actually meteorites and comets smacking into Earth early in its history. They had little bits of water on them, too. And that would mix and, mm. and help to create our atmosphere. And, and what we see is that almost as soon as the planet is habitable, meaning not crazy hot, meaning we have liquid water, we have an atmosphere, uh, we see life. It did not take mm. long mm. for life to appear on this planet once it was habitable. So what that says to me is that if we can find other habitable planets that we're likely to find life. You know, another thing I've always wondered, so you know, being a fan of science, science fiction, you see all kinds of crazy things, right? But we have a certain um, formula for life on, on Earth. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that gotta be in place. But why, why is that a, a requirement? In, mm. uh, I mean, it, but that's the question. Is there some is it aspect of physics Although the physics could be different in a different solar system, I suppose. Yeah. So, you know, the things we look for and we say we need to have these various things to have life on any planet. The question really is, is, is are, we, are we being too strict in sure. our requirements? Yeah, I, I think about that sometimes. It's not my specialty, but what I've, when I, I teach this a little bit in one of my introductory courses. Yeah, yeah. And what we find is that uh, water probably is essential to life. Because you need a, a you need a medium to move chemicals around, right? You need you need a, a way to sort of um, create things like cells, right? Like all life that we know, sure, it's 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 just on this planet. Uh, but I think that there are similarities to all life on this planet that appear to be pretty critical to life itself. And the other one that comes to mind is carbon, right? Like, mm -hmm. does, do we have to have carbon-based mm -hmm. life? Mm -hmm. And there are unique properties of carbon that allow it to, to be the building blocks of life because it really binds really well with itself. And that's because of its intrinsic properties. That's because of where it is in the periodic table. And carbon is found throughout the universe. So I do think if we were to find other life, it probably would be carbon-based. It might not look like people. And <laughs> right. I don't, I'm not talking intelligent life here. That's mm -hmm. a whole other issue. Okay. I'm talking about any sort of life. Mm -hmm. It's going to be carbon-based and, and probably requires water. Now, how bizarre is it that Earth has intelligent life at the level we're at where we create endless things, time and time? I mean, think about the world today, even compared to 10, last week even, but 10 years ago, 20, 30, 50, you're talking thousands and tens yeah. of thousands, but the technological changes, the advancements, yeah. and I think the, about all the time. disasters as well that we have created. It's, it's incredible how that it could is. be. Yeah, I think about it all the time. I mean, what a unique moment in this planet's history. I think we, we often think about this in terms of human history. Like, what an interesting time for us to be alive, yes, right? Yes, yes. I think about it in terms of planetary history. Mm -hmm. I think about it in the four and a half billion years that this planet has been around mm -hmm. and the 3.5 at least billion years that we've had life on this planet, mm -hmm. this planet has now uh, 
uh, arisen or, or, or created, and I don't, I don't mean that in any sort of deterministic way, but, mm-hmm. but from this planet, an intelligent species has emerged just in the last fraction of a moment in this planet's history that has the capability of doing all these amazing things and also uh, affecting all the rest of the, pla- of the life on this planet, right? I mean, where, when else in this planet's history can you find uh, anything like that? You can find examples of when life has affected other life on the planet, like when the first photosynthesis was created and all of a sudden oxygen showed up yep. and that actually poisoned other life forms mm. at the time, probably caused a mass extinction event. But it wasn't intelligent, it didn't know what it was doing, there, mm-hmm. right? But now, here we are. Yes. We, we have this massive impact on every other life form on this planet, and we're intelligent. We know what we're doing. We have the capability of change, and I think about that all the time. We're talking to Eric Osterberg. Let's take a short break and come right back. From time to time, I like to add a little uh, commercial break in between our, uh, our segments. And today's commercial break is, is about you uh, and uh, what you can do to help uh, combat uh, climate change. A lot of people think there's not a lot you can do, but the truth is that doing even little things make a big difference. The biggest place, one of the biggest places that uh, each of us uses uh, a lot, creates a lot of carbon pollution, is obviously our cars, and we're not going to give up our cars. Or maybe we could think about that. Some people listening probably don't even have a car. If you live in, uh, you know, New York City, you got to be crazy to have a car. Uh, I, uh, in our family, we have one car, uh, and uh, that's uh, and there's two people in our in our household, and that uh, takes a little bit of negotiation here and there. But I've been threatening lately to get rid of that car and just go kind of cold turkey uh, with zero cars. And I don't know if that's gonna gonna happen. And that's gonna be realistic. But why not think about some crazy ideas when it comes to dealing with climate change? Any little bit can help. We're back with uh, Eric Osterberg on the Sidcast. Uh, Eric, we were talking about uh, a little bit of the uh, the science. Then I started asking all about Earth <laughs> and the solar system because mm-hmm. you know I, uh, I like everyone else probably listening. We're always wondering about this. But you also uh, touched on, and I want to really get into this now in more detail. Uh, climate uh, climate change. Yeah. Um, first of all, I recall not that long ago we used to use the word global warming, mm. and now we're using climate change. Sure. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, or absolutely. Why yeah. is that? It's because uh, while warming is the most um, direct impact from higher greenhouse gases, yep. like that, it it directly causes warming, and that's a, that's at a physics level. Okay, the gases actually absorb uh, radiation that the Earth emits that, that usually goes, you know, So that's almost like space. a formula right there. That's it is. Happen. It is. Like, yeah. so, so warming actually is what happens. But when you change the temperature of the planet, other things happen. So you change storms. You change uh, rainfall patterns. You change, pla- you know, where places get drought. And, From and how the rise in temperatures. Happens. From the rise in temperatures and the changes in weather patterns that, that happen because of those, of those changes in temperatures. Is it because of the change in temperature only or also because of more pollutants in the air? So pollutants uh, will also affect climate, but generally the way they're doing it is also through affecting the radiation balance, the amount of sunlight that reaches the yeah, earth. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. So that's what greenhouse gases are doing. They're affecting the amount of radiation that escapes from earth. 
you could think of it kind of like a, a blanket, right? We're, we're, we're putting on another layer of blanket, and that's going to warm up the planet. Yeah. Uh, and, and pollution often reflects sunlight back to space and can actually cause a small cooling. So one of the interesting side effects of us cleaning up atmospheric pollution, mostly because of acid rain and, you know, causing respiratory mm. disease and stuff, is that, um, you know, that pollution was acting as a little bit of a coolant. <laughs> and now that we're cleaning it up, which saves You're millions of lives. You're not arguing against that No, sure. absolutely not. It saves, <laughs> it literally saves millions of lives. Okay? Millions of lives? Millions of lives. Come on, how could that be? Millions. That's another big number. It is. Today, right now in China, 5 million people die every year because of air pollution. 5 million and that's just in, in China now, a very populous country with a big mm. air pollution problem. Mm. But that gives you a sense of the scale that we're talking about here. These, these, are, these are massive issues. So, no, I'm not advocating that we not <laughs> got clean that. up the atmosphere. I make sure we got that but straight. it does have this interesting side effect. You know, one thing I, uh, I wonder about with this terminology is terminology yeah. is so, so important sure. in everything. It's how you frame the debate, yeah, frame yeah. the discussion. Um, climate change is more innocuous. It's... Uh, it, it's mm. Uh, for the average person, I think there's no doubt. Global warming, that's, that, that can't be a great thing unless you're just being silly about you know, living yeah. in the north and you say, well, it'll be a little bit warmer. Uh, but climate change is it's a bit more neutral. It could be changing for the better or for the worse. Interesting. And I think, I don't know, but I think that there are political players that have really advocated hmm. for this terminology of climate change, which I think from the science point of view, based on what you just said, uh, you you actually think that it's, it's the right thing for scientific reasons, but not yeah. for f- political framing reasons. Interesting point. So, you know, I it's really interesting to hear you say that because I guess I imagined that this changing in the terminology was at at least in large part driven by the science community saying let's not only focus on the temperature because say for example here in the Northeast in New England. Um, one of the biggest impacts of global warming, climate change, is that we've seen more intense storms, mm-hmm. much more intense uh, rainfall in particular, which causes more flooding. So Hurricane Irene is a great example of that. Hurricane Sandy would be another one. Um, we know, and, and this is some of my own research, we know that, that climate change, human CO2, mm-hmm. has a, a fingerprint on that, okay, that that, that has helped to push that yeah, to happen. Could you explain that fingerprint in a way that the average person will understand? So, yeah, the way you can think about it is loaded dice. So human CO2 has made it more likely that a storm like Hurricane Irene happens. We, we know that if you wait long enough, hundreds of years, mm-hmm. a really intense storm like a Sandy or an Irene mm-hmm. or a Katrina is going to happen. And so you can't say that any storm that happens like that is due to climate change. But what we can say is that human CO2 is making it more and more likely that those storms happen. So instead of happening once every 500 years, now they happen once every few decades. And that is a huge difference, right, right? in right, terms right. of impact on people and societies. But what about the, 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 the science of it? Again, in, yeah. in an easily digestible so why? How does CO2 lead yeah. to a higher probability of a hurricane, for example. Great, great question. So what makes a hurricane uh, go is basically warm ocean temperatures and uh, water vapor in the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, gaseous water in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Water vapor is literally gasoline for hurricanes. That's what makes them go. The more water vapor you have, the more powerful the hurricane can be and the more rain it's going to drop. And you need warm ocean temperatures. 
So as CO2 goes up, that causes the atmosphere to warm. That causes the ocean to warm. Both of those are absolutely already happening. When the ocean warms, it makes it more likely to, have, uh, to, to kick off a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And when the atmosphere warms, it means that more water vapor can be in the atmosphere. Okay. That's and so you're adding more gasoline right, to right. the atmosphere that allows these and things one, to go. And one little uh, part to kind of close the loop for, uh, for me, who was the opposite to a scientist. How is it that CO2 increases water temperature or, or more vapor? So CO2, uh, literally, the, the gas molecules themselves absorb radiation from the Earth. If in, and when you talk about the greenhouse effect, usually people think you mean global warming, right? Mm, yes. As a scientist, we talk about the greenhouse effect as uh, actually a fully natural process that if we didn't have CO2 in the atmosphere, Earth would not be habitable, okay? If we had no CO2 in the atmosphere, the average temperature of the Earth would be below zero Fahrenheit, meaning an uninhabitable planet, no liquid water. So um, we need some CO2 in the atmosphere in order to get us to that habitable, happy Mm -hmm, temperature. mm -hmm. But the more CO2 you add, the more of this energy gets absorbed and the higher the atmospheric temperature gets. And then if the atmosphere warms, the ocean, you know, that will warm the oceans as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a kind of finely tuned system in place here, which, yeah, which it is, I it guess. It is. The climate system is pretty finely tuned. And, yeah. and it was um, pretty stable for 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age. You know, we've had it, we've, as a, as a um, species, we really enjoyed a period of, of climate stability. And, um, you know, if you think about, 10,000 years ago was when agriculture first appeared. You know, we used to be hunter-gatherers, you know, in sort of migrating groups. And 10,000 years ago, right as soon as climate stabilized, is when we started doing agriculture and started, you know, making permanent settlements that didn't just migrate around. And that has led to everything that we have today. So sometimes you hear people say, well, how could there be global warming when it's colder and colder, like the polar vortex of uh, not sure. that long ago? So what's the explanation there? The explanation there is that as, as the Earth warms, the uh, Arctic, the polar regions, actually warm twice as fast as the rest of the world. So, yes, the equator is warming up, but the North Pole is warming twice as fast. And what that, what that does is it slows down the jet stream. What powers the jet stream is the temperature difference between the poles and the equator. If there's a bigger difference, the jet stream is faster. And so as that difference is getting smaller, because the poles are warming Mm. faster than the equator, the jet stream slows down. And when the jet stream slows down, it gets bigger waves in it. And it's these waves in the jet stream that give us things like these polar vortex outbreaks. And actually, our own own research is looking at this as well, is, um, you know, can we attribute these polar vortex changes to climate change? And it looks like the evidence is... I would say not con- fully conclusive, mm-hmm. but right now the, the majority of the evidence is that change, you know, the, the melting sea ice and less snow across Siberia mm-hmm. are two things that appear to mm-hmm. be particularly um, impactful on the wow. jet stream. So, you know, melting glaciers, melting sea ice, uh, parts of Antarctica, I guess the, the glacial sea uh, shield, of, I guess they're chipping off. Yeah. Um, I think some of your, your research, maybe others as well, has talked about what will happen mm. when sea levels rise as a result yeah. of this. So could you kind of explain, is that, is that, is that accurate? Is that going to happen? How certain are you it's going to happen? And what are the implications for places like you know, Manhattan and yeah. Singapore and other places? It's already happening. So sea level, 
uh, in Manhattan has already gone up about uh, 10 inches to a foot over the last century because uh, primarily the glaciers in Greenland and small mountain glaciers like in Alaska are melting. And because as the ocean warms up, we talked about the ocean warming up for these hurricanes, one of the other things that happens when the ocean warms up is that it expands a little bit. And that also helps to raise hmm. sea level. So a warmer ocean takes up more volume than so, a, than so a colder So there's two ocean. things that are going on. Yeah. The volume, because it's warmer, it expands. Yep. And then there's just more water. And then more, because more of the water that used to be on land as a glacier is now being added to the ocean. So those are the uh, two biggest causes of sea level rise. So it's already happening. Some places are, are rising faster than others, like Washington, D.C., the mid-Atlantic coast region is... Um, rising almost twice as fast as the rest of the world because uh, the coastline there is actually sinking a little bit. So as the oceans go up, mm -hmm. if the land is sinking, then the sea level at that spot... The land is sinking not yeah. because the oceans are going up, no. but because yeah. of erosion of some type or No, just... it, in, in that case, it's because of um, people getting so much water out of the ground huh. to support this, you know, megalopolis from D.C. to New York. You are really painting a picture. Oh, yeah. Again, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I mean, it's like no, every no, single no. thing I'm we an, do. I'm actually an optimist. <laughs> I'm an optimist. I believe that we're going to, to fix this. Would you buy oceanfront property? It depends where it is. It depends where it is. So like I say, some places are rising faster than others, and I would be very careful about buying ocean property in, uh, in a place where it's rising quickly. Um, so, yes, in the future... We know that as temperatures go up, uh, melting of Greenland, melting of Antarctica yep. is expected to go up. We, our own research already shows that melt rates right now in Greenland are at their highest levels in thousands of years and that it was really a dramatic increase in melting that started around the mid-1990s. Okay, so Very recent. Very recent, yeah. Greenland was actually relatively stable until mm -hmm. the mid-90s when um, the combination of global warming and uh, uh, of the atmosphere and of the oceans really kicked off uh, enhanced melting in Greenland in the mid-90s. And, and it, that really peaked in like 2012 when we had melting of, there was surface melt over the entire ice sheet, which we hadn't seen ever before. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean the whole ice sheet is gone, obviously it's still there, but that means that there were a few days in July in 2012 mm -hmm. when it was above freezing everywhere on the ice sheet. Which is which is crazy. We've never seen that before. Okay, you're you're an optimist, so you're gonna cheer me up now. Why are you an optimist after telling a story like this? So, the reason I'm an optimist is because um, nobody wants this. Nobody wants this to happen. Okay, and the political debate that we have right now is one side is saying these things are happening, mm -hmm. and these are not things that anybody wants. And so we need to change uh, the amount of carbon that we emit in order to, to slow this down or to even stop it in the future. And the other side isn't saying, no, 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 this is fine. Let's keep doing this because I want it to be warmer. I want more hurricanes. I want higher sea level. They're not saying level. that, but, but they're, they're not saying that. Deniers what they're saying is, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. That's what they're saying, That's right? right. I don't buy it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you. And the problem is that that is an unsustainable argument in the face of evidence. Ah, but wh where does that argument come from? Why are they saying that? I it's not rational. If, it's if not you, rational. If, you, it's, if, if, if it's in their interest for their children and grandchildren to survive and live and, for, and, and if they care anything about their environment around them. Even if they don't care about it, they yeah. care about their kids and their grandchildren. Sure. So, but yet they're saying it. Yeah. I think um, that's, that's, 
that's kind of my million dollar question. I so. have a hypothesis on that. Which what's your What's your hypothesis? My hypothesis is that there are many uh, incentives and interests that people have, and many people perceive the efforts to reduce global warming, climate change, uh, as something that's going to cost them money. Yeah. Um, that's going to create more regulations on business. Yes. And they don't like that idea. Right. Uh, and because they want to grow their businesses, they want to make more money, and all the, and those are real incentives, real powerful incentives. They're very short-term compared to what we're talking about. Um, but so I think that's what's behind yeah. a lot of it. I think you're right, and I think that um, this – I think people don't – feel it in everyday life. So as they're making these decisions mm -hmm. about what am I going to do with my company in terms of sustainability or what am I going to do as a, an individual, which car am I going to buy, right? Mm -hmm. They don't feel climate change in that moment. Climate change happens, uh, unfortunately, for human action side of things, it happens kind of gradually. So we actually get used to these mm. changes. Now, on the one hand, that's good because getting used to it means that it doesn't impact us quite as much. We adapt to changes. Mm -hmm. But uh, the problem is that it happens so slowly, you're, you're sort of the frog in the warming pot of water. Right. That we're going to get to a point where people go, I do now feel this, and I don't like it, but it's going to be too late at that point. And so we need to find ways of, um, of getting people to see that, you know, I think what, the, what is central to what you said is the opinion that doing something about climate change will cost me. Doing something about climate change will is is a is a sacrifice in some way yes, right that's right that is i think the key message we have to flip i think that if we can flip that message to so that people don't see doing something about climate change as some sacrifice they have to make something they have to give up but actually an opportunity mm -hmm. right uh, there are enormous benefits you know for from a business side of things to be more sustainable you could just call that saving money. What hmm. business is not in the interest of making more money? So you're, you're on to something, I think, that um, um, I'm, I, I have been surprised at, at, how, at the extent to which this argument doesn't always permeate. But there are a lot of savvy people in business where, where it does. And, and you're talking about saving money. But in fact, um, there are opportunities to make a ton of money by creating all sorts of new yes. businesses, products, services to solve a real gigantic problem that many, many, many people care about, which is what business is all about. Find out what people care about and come up with a solution to solve their problem. People will pay you for that. Yeah. And so you see that, for example, um, in, um, in some efforts by some companies to deal with uh, sustainability in various ways, not necessarily or specifically climate change. Uh, you see it in uh, building codes. Mm -hmm. uh, there are companies that that have created these lead certification mm -hmm. um, um, approaches to building codes that are going to be more sustainably built, that are going to be using better materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there, there's a whole industry in solar panels and windmills and all kinds of alternative energy. Yeah. And that's there's a lot of money to be made. There's a in, lot of money in, to be made. In, in that. Um, and even uh, I was talking to a, a CEO of a um, very large uh, telecommunications company just the other day. And we, I asked him about privacy, uh, which, you know, in the era of Facebook and Google and everything else, it's a gigantic issue. And, um, and this is a company, you know, telecommunications that collects a lot of data on customers. We give it to them. And they have a lot of access to what we're watching on TV and other things like mm -hmm. that. And people are concerned. And the conversation, uh, it was almost like a light bulb was going on in his head, although he 
uh, I think he was describing that his company already has some projects in this direction, which is if they can help solve, strong word, but solve the privacy concerns that people have, uh, people are going to want to, people are going to buy that. For example, yeah. I would pay money for an app or some, let's, let's say an app that enables me to monitor whether, whether anyone else is out there trying to steal my data mm-hmm. or watching what I'm watching on TV mm-hmm. or getting to my modem or my router or what have you. I'd pay even more if somebody else could do it for me and I didn't have to worry about the technology. Sure. Those are enormous opportunities. Yeah. And so, so, so when you talk... You, 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 you've keyed in on it. This is, I am now convinced that uh, we, to, to put it bluntly, we have to stop selling climate change. We have to stop selling the problem to people. Because as you just said, when I talk about these things, what is your emotion? What do you feel? You go, oh, my God. It's depressing. It's depressing. It is overwhelming. My wife, like this is my career, right? <laughs> my wife doesn't want to hear it. She can't hear it anymore. Oh, my. It's overwhelming mm-hmm. when you start focusing mm-hmm. on the problem. And I think that... Um, there are certain people because of their own incentives or whatever that, that just gives them, it's too much to take in. And so you just go, I can't deal with that. And so you don't. Whereas if we flip this and stop talking about the problem, start selling the solutions and so, so sell the solutions as huge opportunities for people, for companies, for, for us as a nation on all these different levels, um, then people will run to those things, right? People, people only run from fear if it's eminent, if your house is burning now or yeah. somebody's and right this there. this is going so slowly as you But fear, as you like the fear that we're talking about is, is, is in the future. And it's, and it's always a little waffly, right? It's a little arm wavy. Right, Exactly right. how is this going to kill you or hurt you or hurt your kids or even your grandkids? Mm. Exactly how, right? But, um, but opportunity, you can make more money. We can lead as a nation, you know, the international world of nations here. We can, we can reassert ourselves as world leaders on this issue. And I'd say Dartmouth too. Like I, I try and take this to the very personal level. I think Dartmouth should be leading on this. I think we should be the green ivy. We could be, I mean, we're already the big green. That's our, that's our mascot. <laughs> that's right. We should be leading on this. We have the resources. Let's, let's bring students here to um, learn all, all of these wonderful things from all aspects, right, mm-hmm. from the arts to business mm-hmm. to, to science, and actually walk the walk. Show that you can live a sustainable life and still do all the things that you want to do. And still generate value and still generate yourself value. and your, your teammates and your friends and it's society more generally. In other words, uh, um, framing it as not a, uh, an us versus them, which is the way it's been framed, yeah. Uh, is is critical. That's critical for so many things in, yeah. in, in life, and um, it's not that this is necessarily easy. But I think there's a I think there are precedents, and when you see the development of solutions in other fields uh, where they're where they're solving a problem that is a social or environmental uh, type of problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one last real quick thing, because we we need to take one more one more break. Um, um, there's a real strong kind of there's a scientific story and. You've been mm-hmm. sharing some of that, some of that story, but there's also recognition that the science by itself doesn't easily win for the average person, Absolutely and this not, is yeah. true not just for science at the level you're you're dealing with, but for almost any argument in a in a company in a in a in a team an organization, or even for parents. You could you could yeah. make your point. Here are the facts: <laughs> one, two, three, four. Yeah, and every parent knows this. And <laughs> isn't it? You see, as soon as you say a parent, everyone gets it. Yeah. In other contexts, they say, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> um, these are the facts. Uh, of course, you will respond to those facts because they're crystal clear. But actually, yeah. no. Uh, you have to appeal to the emotions of people. Yeah. And 
some people in science might say, well, well, we'll do the science. You help us do that. Mm. But I think the most effective scientists are going to be the ones that appeal to the emotions of people, that can tell the story. Yeah. And that's a gigantic um, – that's, that's a giant opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I know you've started to do that. You've done that in some of your teaching and some of your other activities. And I want to I ask you a little bit about that and as well as um, not that long ago uh, spending a little bit of time in D.C. with mm-hmm. Congress on, on these issues. So let's take, uh, let's, let's take a quick break and we'll come right back to get into that. Great. This is Sid Finkelstein, and we're back with the SIDcast. Uh, Eric is here, Eric Osterberg. And um, we, we've been talking about a lot of things and a lot of ideas. And one of the things that I, I know you've done in the public policy arena is you've, you've been to D.C., you've talked to Congress. Uh, first of all, what was, that, what was that like? Yeah, it was a really, really heady experience. <laughs> where where uh, was it? Were you on Capitol Hill? Yeah, well, guess what? I was on Capitol Hill uh, the same day that Michael Cohen was doing his giant testimony. I thought I saw you on TV. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and it was funny because um, – so I was invited down by uh, Congressman Cartwright from Pennsylvania, and he's part of a coalition called the Sustainable – environment or sustainable energy and environment coalition okay uh, and it's a group of mostly democrats on the house side and so he, he invited me down to to brief members of uh, the coalition and their staffers on my research and and sort of my takes on on climate change and and on climate framing right for policy mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh so yeah, i was there the same day as michael cohen and and one of his um uh, chief of staff said to me, you know, I don't know how many people are going to show up because <laughs> there's a little bit going on today on the Hill. But we uh, we packed we packed a room. You so did. it was great. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, – Did they ask you a lot of questions? They did. The staffers had great questions and, um, you know, most of them are, are folks who are fairly recently out of, out of college and stuff. Yeah, so sure. that's sort of a group of people I'm used to it's interacting with. like your students with. again, it's, right? It's just like A bunch my of smart students. students asking you questions about Super it. Super bright, engaged students, yeah. Yeah, okay, very interesting. And um, you ever think you'd be speaking to Congress when you were a kid? Not when I was a kid, but I did actually hope that, that that's where I would end up eventually. I, yeah. I had this interesting uh, decision point after I finished my master's degree. I decided that I really was interested in, in climate policy, and, and not just climate policy, but where science and policy intersect. And, and I actually went to D.C. and spent like maybe 10 days doing what I called informational interviews. So I worked uh, – I went to Middlebury College and I worked the Middlebury Alumni Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wrote to anybody in D.C. who was sort of affiliated with Middlebury mm. or an alum. And some of them wrote back like Ari Fleischer who was really? press secretary for George Bush right. wrote back. This is 2001, right after 9-11. Was he a Middlebury graduate? He was a Middlebury grad. Really? And so he actually uh, – took a phone call and gave me some names to contact. And, you know, when the press secretary to the White House gives you names, these are like, these are big names. And you say, you know, Ari Fleischer yeah, suggested I called. Yeah, when you say Ari Fleischer suggested I called, they, they write you back. Yeah. So I started off with, I don't know, maybe six meetings with fairly high up people. And then every meeting I would have, they said, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to these two guys and mm-hmm. tell them I told you. <laughs> you know, to talk to them. Yeah. And so they would write back. So I thought I'd be there for like three days. It turned into 10. Wow. I just kept extending my stay, mm. talking to people in all branches of government. And my fundamental question was, do I need a PhD to do what I want to do down here? And most of the people who didn't have a PhD said, no, you don't need it. Most people who did said, yeah, you need it. And uh, <laughs> there were a few who didn't who said that they felt like there was a bit of a glass ceiling. And so uh, I decided I wanted to go get my PhD with the ultimate goal of going back 
to DC and doing yep. this work. Yeah. And along the way, um, realized that I really love the hard science aspect of it and doing research, and I love teaching. And uh, we ended up here in the Upper Valley. I was basically a trailing spouse behind my wife, who's a pediatrician, and she was uh, she she matched here to do residency at Dartmouth. Mm. And at the time, I was like. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do up there? What am I going to do at Amherst, New Hampshire? There's one department. They have nine faculty members, right? You know, how about Boston? How about, how about D.C.? There's lots of opportunities. And I was just lucky enough to get a, a postdoc at, in the department here and get my foot in the door, and that, that's led to where I am today. Wow, tremendous. You know, there's two, there's two lessons about careers that uh, come, come out of what you just said. Uh, one is, of course, uh, something I always say, which is don't ask, don't get. You ask mm-hmm. people for some help. Yeah. And it wasn't like asking for, you know, an enormous thing, but a conversation, an information exactly. interview. I wasn't asking for a job. Yeah. And I many, was just asking, uh, like, how'd you get here? Yeah. And lots of people said said yes. And, yeah. you know, that, this is people that, uh, you know, people in business school and other things, they kind of learn that along the way. But there's a lot of people that don't know that. And I think that's really good. And then the other thing is... Um, um, you really were willing to pay your dues. You know, and the question is, get a PhD or not? It's not a trivial thing. You know? How many <laughs> no. years did it take you to get a PhD? Well, yeah, and so about counting five postdocs five six, and everything right? else to put you in a position to do what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a trivial. Uh, it's not a trivial thing. How about when you were um, like like a kid? Um, mm. um, did you did you like? Geology, or I love uh, the weather. The, we- the weather. I love the weather. What so, is it about weather? I have two friends that love the weather. They're know. they're amateur weathermen. They're <laughs> all, exactly. So I was one of the growing up. I was an amateur weatherman. All you know, I go back to my my parents' house, my old room, and all the first books I bought were weather and climate books and fly fishing books because <laughs> I love <laughs> to fly fish uh, and fish in general. So uh, I don't know. I always loved the weather. I used to track hurricanes and track tornadoes and big nor'easters. I grew up near Boston, so we got these big nor'easter storms up the coast yeah, that we yeah. get. And uh, I think all my friends in high school assumed I'd be a TV weatherman someday. <laughs> and when I was deciding on colleges, I was very close to going to Cornell because they had a meteorology program. Mm. And then eventually decided that I wanted to stay broad in liberal arts and uh, fell in love with Middlebury wanted to come to Dartmouth, but they said no. Well, so you got, up, you got the last laugh. I got the one. last laugh, but uh, I ended up going to Middlebury and um, coming at it from the earth science perspective. And uh, it's, been, it's been amazing uh, coming back to – it's interesting because, you know, earth science, geology, it's much longer time periods that we've been talking about than like yeah. storms. But now my research actually is at that intersection between storms – and, uh, you know, sort of longer time periods like years or decades, right? So my ice cores that I study actually sometimes we can see the record of storms in them. And hmm. so I'm coming back to my roots there. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And so what do you teach uh, students? So I teach, uh, I teach a meteorology class and I teach an introductory class which is on um, sort of the evolution of this planet and how we got to where we are today and how climate has changed naturally in the past and how that's affected life on this planet. We talk about the extinction events and how we're, we're living through another extinction event now. It's human-caused. And I think it gives students a really good um, grounding in sort of how did we get here and so what does that mean for where we are now and where yeah. we're going in the future, right? right? I think I know as a student – you know, you're, you're, just, you're just trying to get through your classes, trying to do well and get good grades, and, and your head's sort of down, and you're in this, you know, almost idyllic bubble of a, of a New England campus. Yep. And I, I, what I try and do is just get the students to, like, stop 
and and look around, first of all, at this amazing environment that we're in here. Mm. Think about how it came to be. So we talk about how these mountains formed, you know, hundreds of millions of mm. years ago and got eroded down to little nubs that we have here today as hills. Uh, and, and then how the climate has changed. And, and the lesson is, you know, CO2 is this master master control switch on climate. And in the past, nature, natural processes has changed CO2 and it's gone up and it's gone down, but it takes thousands and sometimes millions of years. And that now, uh, now it's humans and we're doing it in years to decades. And, um, and I think that having that grounding in earth science and the long history of this planet really allows them to understand just how hmm unique and, uh, and and in some ways troubling what's happening to the environment now yeah. is. And you're, so this course is a science course or yes. predominantly because yeah. you're a scientist, but I could also easily see all kinds of other related topics being part of this from, from the social sciences, uh, from certainly a historical perspective, mm. um, um, how society, uh, sociology, so how, how the society kind of processes um, mass movements of information of yeah. this type that uh, that's going on. Um, it, there's a business side to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of alluded to something like this earlier about how you know there's so many different aspects that are all interconnected here that uh, I think when they're put together, people can grasp it. I think, um, yeah. and maybe it becomes more meaningful for them on a on a personal on a personal level. Um, and most of these students in that class, they are not our science majors. <laughs> okay, the most of them are are majoring in in other and something else, something else here on campus, yeah, and yeah. and are going to be doing something else. They're not going to be scientists. They're not going to be researchers. They're going to be running businesses. They're going to be uh, doing all sorts of things, being lawyers and doctors. And and I'd like them to have this this little bit of, of context. I, I'd like context. to take your class actually. If I I don't know if I can keep great. up with them anymore, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so your your students, um, these are undergraduate students, so they're let's say you know twenty years old, give or take, um, and you've been teaching for over over ten years, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed any changes in students as they come come into your classes? Um, I do find that these students are. Uh, I, I guess I have. When I first started, I, I felt like the students were fairly sort of passive on social issues, right? Mm. They weren't doing rallies. There wasn't any sort of call to arms, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, And I think just in the last few years, we've seen a lot more student activism. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is uh, the political scene. Um, Part of it is the climate and environmental scene in general. But we've seen it on on social issues, right? The the Black Lives Matter movement, um, movement around sexual harassment, the Me Too movement. We've just seen... We've seen students become much more active in yeah. that decade, mm-hmm. and uh, and from a climate standpoint, I'm I love it because I remember a decade ago just being like, "Why aren't you guys doing more? <laughs> How could you listen like, to this and just right, sit like, there?" Yeah, but now they are. They're really active yeah. now, and it's great. I think there really is a um, um, a change going on around uh, with with many millennials being among the leaders, and I think twenty year olds are not millennial generation, but close. Uh, and I certainly see it teaching in a, in a business school. So many of our students walk in caring a lot about sustainability, about climate issues, about social policies, yeah. um, m- way more than ever, ever before. Ever before. And this is translating into the into the job market and into the business community. Because if you're a CEO or a senior executive in a company and you don't have anything to say about sexual harassment or Me Too or or climate change or or, or you know private 
privacy issues, uh, there'll be a lot of people that will wonder if they're in the right place yeah. as, a, as a cultural fit. And especially in an economy where uh, there, there's huge demand for great, uh, great talent. And that's never really going to go away, but we're kind of at an at a almost cyclical peak. Um, it's, a, it's a big advantage to have that type of leadership. Yeah. Um, and I also know that you've uh, mentored a lot of people, both undergraduate, graduate students, postdoc, mm-hmm. in fact, um, and they've been on some of your um, expeditions yeah. and other things. Uh, I don't know if that's standard or common. I mean, I know mm-hmm. in academia we always do things like that, but it seems like when I was looking at the list of people you have worked with and mentored, it's a very long list. Yeah. So you, this must be a purposeful um, yeah. I mindset think that you've got. It is. I think uh, this this concept of... I don't know. You can call it whatever. There's lots of names, like experiential learning, right? The mm-hmm. students not just learning this stuff in the classroom, but actually being able to do the research themselves and generate new knowledge. We, I think that's one of the things that Dartmouth does really well. And it's not just Dartmouth, but I think we, we do this really well where we're, we're bringing this sort of you know, world-class research to, in particular, the undergraduates. Yeah. And uh, so I've been fortunate to have... Um, a great laboratory manager who loves to teach and, mm-hmm. and wants to, to bring students into the lab. And so, yeah, we've, we've had so many students come through, and many of them get to go on some of these polar expeditions to Alaska, to Denali, or, or to Greenland, or even Antarctica. So a real practical question yeah. about that. Where do they get the money for this? How does that work? Is there a budget? They, they, get, it. they get it either from, from my grants through the National Science Foundation, or they get it from Dartmouth. Most of it they're getting from Dartmouth. And so Dartmouth has made this a priority to, to try and get students to do more you know, research and experiential learning. And so, for example, a trip to Denali costs, costs about $3,500, all said and done, per student. And they're able to raise that from various pots around Dartmouth yeah. that are supporting undergraduate research. That is, that is so incredibly important because, as yeah. you know, in any university, and Dartmouth is a good example of it, uh, there's a lot of disparity in, in the wealth that people have. There's yes. a lot of people that they're first generation to college, and they come from lower socioeconomic background. They could never afford to do any of these things if it had to come out of you know, a family, a family yeah. budget. Um, so that's uh, that's a great. It's amazing, thing. and and I I, I interviewed at another uh, college that will remain nameless, and I I talked to them about this. You know, like, do you have resources available for yeah. for me to take students to the field? And they said, Oh yes, 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 we do. And I was like, Okay, so what are we you know what are we talking about? They're like, Well, I would think that we could be able to get you maybe six hundred dollars a student, right? Mm. Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be great? And I'm thinking to myself. Yeah, that's not going to do it. <laughs> it's not going <gonna laughs> to do it. It's not even coming close. <laughs> it's not going to do so it. So we're pretty fortunate here. Yeah. Um, let's let's go to uh, our uh, kind of lightning round. It's my new word for this. All right. Ask you a bunch of quick questions, mostly about yourself, uh, so you, you you know the answers that are that are in you. Uh, <laughs> but I think what I'm what what, uh, what we like to do with some of these questions is look for uh, little little bits of advice for uh, for listeners. Sure. Um, and uh, and one of my favorite in this regard is uh, if you could imagine. Um, transporting yourself back in time, which you could imagine given the research you do, <laughs> but not that long ago, to when you were 21 years old. And uh, you're, sitting, you're sitting right next to the 21-year-old Eric, and you're leaning over, and you're telling him, you know, there's yeah. one thing you really need to know. What would, that, what would that be? What would that bit of advice be to your 21-year-old self? I think it would be um, make the most out of every opportunity, and it'll work out. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, there are so many huge bifurcation points in my past that I can point to. I mean, I, I wasn't actually 
their first choice for the postdoc in my department. I was their second choice. Their first choice signed the, dot, the dotted line and then re, you know, went off into industry. Uh, and only then did I get that job. So yeah. who knows where I would be today mm-hmm. if, uh, if that person had made that decision for themselves. Right. But um, so there's a lot of serendipity. You, you can't necessarily control where you're going to end up. And as a 21 year old, I don't think you, you could you could say, like, this is where I want to be. And so on. that's what's going to happen. But if you make the most of every opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're going to end up in a good position. You know, it's uh, uh, it's interesting analogy to entrepreneurs. People look at entrepreneurs very often. They say, well, they were they're kind of lucky. Yeah. And there's luck in every aspect of, of life. But absolutely, most people, maybe everyone, but let's say most people, they do have some opportunities that come up at various points in time. Some will be given more than others, of course, but there are some. And who takes advantage of it? That's yeah. not a matter of, of luck. And, you know, there's a risk of failing, of course. There's a risk of falling, falling flat in your face and it doesn't work. But that's why you do it because mm. it, it's, it's 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 a challenge. It's something you – and then you feel great when you when you actually do it. Yeah. Um, when do you do you, um, do you remember any any specific or particular uh, bit of advice from um, from your mom or your dad as a as a now I'm talking about mm. you know this is the psychiatrist couch now right sure. going back to when you were really uh, really young and is there I mean is there anything uh, anything that sticks in your head that as I ask you that question you say you know yeah actually mom said that or dad said that or it could have been an an aunt an uncle a brother a sister yeah. um, that that. I don't know if it's so, I can point so much to something they would say as much as it was the culture. Okay. You know, the, we, we definitely had a culture of sort of excellence in my house growing up mm. that, uh, you know, my, you could call my parents sort of tiger parents or, or what have you, but that the idea that, yeah, you're not just going to go out there and, and whatever it was, whether it was swim team, which me and my two brothers all did, or whether it was in school or which colleges we applied to or which jobs we had, it was you're you're gonna you're gonna try to be the best yeah and um, and so there was this culture of excellence that you know there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that mm. and and as a parent now I think a lot about that but uh, I think that culture had a lot to do with sort of instilling those like really work really hard my my both my parents worked very hard and um, and I they they you know led by example there but also uh, instilled that culture in us yeah are you and your wife instilling that culture now in your family? I think I think we are. I think um, there is part of the new culture in in child rearing these days seems to be uh, every everything's great. Like everyone's good at something. Every kid gets a trophy. I'm okay. Right? You're okay. Everyone's okay. <laughs> and uh, and my wife and I are definitely a little bit more on the. No, you should get a trophy if you win. Mm. And then if you don't, you need to learn to, to deal with that and, and process mm. uh, that. And, uh, and part of it is goal setting, right? So maybe, for example, my son's a skier. Um, skiing's very hard to win because you're going yeah. against like 50 other kids, yeah. right? And yeah. Like one winner versus soccer. You got two teams, one winner, 50-50, right? Mm. Uh, and so maybe the goal isn't to win, but the goal is to um, have a personal best or to uh, to make a, a better turn than you did last time or something. So you can right. set those goals. And I think as a parent now, that's what I think about is, is helping to set the goals for my kids, but but still to keep to push them. Right. And and realistic goals. 
Um, yeah, they have to be realistic if you can. <laughs> but they can't be uh, a gimme. They can't be yeah. an automatic. They can't Otherwise, be automatic. Not you just show up and you get a trophy. Yeah. Yeah. We're, not, we're, we're not into that. You're not into that. Uh, how did you meet your, your wife, actually? Yeah, I met uh, – so we were both swimmers in college, and she actually transferred to Middlebury as a junior from Barnard. And uh, so we were never at Middlebury at the same time. Hmm. She's two years younger than me, so I went back – for alumni weekend for homecoming and there was alums versus current swim team swim meet and uh so i had just recently graduated the may before this was like in october and um and she was the new transfer student who uh was really cute and (laughs) didn't really know anybody and so we ended up chatting at uh, the party that night and and dating and ended up together that's a good story yeah that's a good story uh well, one, one last question for you, sure. Eric. We, 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 uh, we were kind of talking about what people can do and, uh, about, uh, uh, about global warming, climate, climate change, yeah. uh, and that it's so overwhelming to think about changing your life entirely. But um, there's got to be some, I don't know, easy wins or things that anyone, each of us could do something yeah. that won't be that difficult to do that would make a little difference. And if yeah. enough people did, it would start to add up. Uh, what, what, what would that be? Vote. Number one thing, vote. Like I, sure, changing light bulbs. I, I talk to my students about these big carbon decisions in their life, Yeah. right? Like when you buy a house or when you buy a car, mm. that's a moment in time mm-hmm. that lasts for years and years, if not decades. And so uh, when you buy a house, thinking about, uh, particularly for these like 20-somethings, right, as they approach these big decisions yep. for yep. the first time in their life, when you buy a house, think about, could I bike? Could I, is there mass transport? Uh, do I need this big of a house? How is it heated, right? Or, or all these things. And then a car, like, you know, I, I bought a Toyota Prius because uh, I wanted to sort of walk the walk, right? Yeah. And, and put the, my money where my mouth was and thought like, yeah, I don't really like this car. But it was the only <laughs> thing on the market that, that fit the bill. I ended up loving that car. <laughs> it yeah. was my favorite car I ever had. I mean, nothing to do with its mileage. Sure. So um, when you make these decisions, have that in mind. But I, I emphasize the most important thing people can do is vote. And, mm-hmm. and if vote for, for people who are important to you. There were only, uh, I think it, the numbers were 18% of college-age uh, adults ended up voting in the 2014 midterms. Hmm. 18%. Now, 18%. Uh, you know, maybe it was 17. It was under 20. Maybe it was 14, the exact number. I don't know. But yeah. it was shocking. Mm. Now, imagine if all those young people voted with all of these things that they, they are passionate about now. They're now taking to the streets, literally, about some of these issues now. If they went out and exercised their, their citizen yeah. right to vote. Right. Right. Things would happen pretty quick. I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to do a podcast one day on why it is young people don't vote. Uh, yeah. un- uh, actually, more generally across America, the voting percentage of people that vote is abysmally low compared to many other countries. But young people especially, it, young there's, people especially. there's something going on there. So that's, uh, that's, that is good advice. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been great talking yeah, it's to been you. it's been fun. Right. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>